Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. The Australian National University and the University of Papua New Guinea have a long history of partnership that has been strengthened in the past few years. In this ANU-UPNG research showcase, you will be listening to some of the recent collaborative research done by academics from the two universities. Amanda Watson presents on health phone services, Hwang Ugiel on decentralisation, Dor Kuya Ayas on family sexual violence statistics, Mahalo Pilavale on historical infant industry trade protections, and Colin Wiltshire on the performance of government spending in the health sector. Hi, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my name is Stephen Howes. I'm from the Australian National University. Crawford School of Public Policy, and I direct the Development Policy Centre, so we're the partner for, uh, for this event. And I'm very uh, happy to be chairing uh, this session. Uh, before we start, I'd just uh, like us all to acknowledge Professor Albert Mellon, who is still here. Uh, he chaired the uh, previous session, and um, of course you all know he was the previous Vice-Chancellor here at the ANU, but it was really through his initiative that um, the ANU-UPNG partnership was developed. Uh, he came to ANU some uh, three years ago and uh, signed an MOU with us. And also it was his initiative to bring the uh, PNG update back to UPNG and, and restart it. So it's really thanks to him that we're all here today. So please <laughs> join with me in thanking him. And um, it's also great to see your continued support uh, for, this, for this endeavor. So this is a very exciting uh, session for us because we can showcase some of the research that the two universities have been doing. Before I introduce the different uh, topics, just a couple of announcements. Uh, first, uh, we do have these, the evaluation forms. So ideally, you should fill that out just, just before you leave. Right? So it captures all your insights and uh, experience. But please do fill it out. If you haven't got a copy, there should be a copy. You should have been given a copy on the way in. But if you haven't got a copy, there are some here. There are some outside. And the box to put them in is right outside the door. So we do really appreciate your feedback. We take it seriously. And we try and improve the uh, PNG update every year. So please do take the time to uh, give us your feedback. And then this uh, second announcement is really for the speakers. You know, we, uh, we run a blog called the Dev Policy Blog, and I think you've got a best of the blog book. You should have been given that. Um, if you'd like to appear on the blog, please uh, send us a submission, you know, based on your presentation, or if, you, if you've got any ideas, uh, please do think about writing a blog. It's, it has a lot of um, uh, research about PNG, by PNG researchers, and, and by UPNG researchers, so uh, please do uh, submit the blog. If you're not sure where to send it, just, just go to the blog, devpolicy.org, and you'll see the submission details there. All right, so without further ado, let's start uh, this session. This is our, our showcase session. We, we normally run this as part of the update to share with you some of the joint research that uh, uh, we've been doing as a result of the ANU-UPNG partnership, uh, which is sponsored by the Australian Aid Programme. And in the past years, we've had um, you know, just a couple of presentations. Uh, it's great this year, we've got five uh, teams presenting. 
Uh, and in fact, we could have had more. So it really shows how the research program is maturing and now, and now delivering results. And uh, each team you know, consists of uh, two or more people, at least one from ANU and one from UPNG. And uh, in some cases, they're both going to present. In some cases, it's the UPNG researcher. In some cases, the, the ANU. Uh, and there's a whole variety of topics uh, through from um, health to decentralization, family and sexual violence to protection, uh, tariff protection. So it's from uh, it's a whole range of the social sciences, from public policy uh, through to uh, economics. Uh, most of the UPNG researchers are from the School of Business and Public Policy, which is our main partner. Um, and most of them are from the Development Policy Centre at the ANU side, but we also have people from other parts of UPNG and other parts of ANU, so it's a much broader collaboration. Uh, so because we've got um, uh, five presentations, you have to go pretty quickly. So I've asked each presenter to just speak for 12 minutes, and I'm going to be sitting in the front somewhere, maybe over here. <laughs> Keeping, uh, keeping time, and so we're going to be, uh, we have to be strict on the time, and then we'll ask everyone to come up at the end and we'll have a round of Q&A. So do hold your um, questions for all of the papers at the end. Um, I'll introduce them uh, as we go. There's no particular order, but it's just the way they appear in the agenda. Uh, so we'll, let's get started. Our first paper is on health phone services in Papua New Guinea. This is work done jointly by Amanda Watson and Ralph Kawale. And Amanda is a uh, lecturer at uh, Development Policy Centre, but she's based here at UPNG as a visiting lecturer, lecturer in public policy. And uh, Ralph Kawale, a colleague who sadly can't be here because um, he's unwell and our thoughts are with him uh, today. Uh, but Ralph is a, a lecturer in the public policy division uh, at the School of Business and Public Policy. So Amanda, you've got 12 minutes. Please welcome Amanda Watson. Thank you, Drew. Morning, Drew. Dabanamana. <laughs> this presentation is about health phone services in Papua New Guinea, and that means any uses of phones in strategic manners in the health sector in Papua New Guinea. So as was explained uh, by Professor Stephen House, I'm employed by Australian National University and I'm one of the five ANU lecturers based here at UPNG under the partnership. And as Professor House also said, unfortunately my research partner Mr Ralph Cowley can't be with me today here before you, uh, but he was involved in this research from the beginning, including helping and uh, very much contributing wonderful ideas to the ethics uh, research, human research ethics application that we put into ANU at the start of last year and actively participating and uh, conducting many of the interviews that we did. So uh, I acknowledge his contribution. So if we've used the term health phone service in our title, we could have also used the term telehealth. Uh, another term is sometimes used, and that's the term telemedicine, which is typically limited to phone consultations between medical practitioners and patients. So, for instance, if a heart surgeon, a cardiac surgeon, was perhaps speaking to a patient uh, who resides a very long way away, that could be considered telemedicine. 
By contrast, telehealth is a broad term incorporating telemedicine and a variety of non-physician services including tele-nursing and other forms of use of phones in the health sector. So we use uh, the term health phone services or telehealth we could have also used and we've looked at telehealth in Papua New Guinea. As you know, Papua New Guinea's health system is unfortunately very stretched. There's a shortage of health workers and an ageing health workforce population. High maternal mortality, tropical disease burden uh, and a rising instance of lifestyle diseases uh, that are also putting added pressure on the Papua New Guinea health system. With, with Mr. Ralph Kale in 2017, last year, we conducted in-depth interviews with 24 people in two provinces, all of whom have used or currently use telephones for strategic health-related purposes in some way or other. Of the 24 people that we spoke to, 13 were male and 11 were female, and the interviews were conducted in either Tokpisin or English or a combination of both in the one interview. The interviewees were people with a public health background, telecommunication company employees, rural health workers, health administrators, doctors, nurses, and a telephone counsellor as well. Regarding their level of telehealth experience, most of the interviewees have managed or do currently manage, at the time when we spoke to them, a telehealth service or more than one telehealth service. A key premise of our research is that sustainability is a key factor regarding innovations financed by aid, and indeed sustainability is a big issue regarding any kind of health phone service that is established. In Papua New Guinea, there are examples of aid-funded telehealth projects that have been sustainable and are ongoing, whilst others have not been sustainable and have ceased to operate. So we wanted to find out why that might be. Therefore, this research aimed to determine what factors led to the failure or the success of telehealth services in Papua New Guinea. So let's turn to the findings now. We're going to look at some of the quotes from our interview findings and uh, in particular what we think that they show. So one of our key lessons learned from this research is that phone services which are open to the public are expensive requiring long-term investment and strategic sustained promotional activities. Without both long-term investment and a very uh, well-organised promotion program, a phone service which is set up for members of the public is uh, not going to be sustainable. And these photos, just so that you know, these photos are of the Digicel call centre in Port Moresby, and they also have a facility uh, where they allow other companies or organisations, such as non-government organisations or government departments, to come in and use their facilities. And so you can have different people based there answering phone calls, depending on what your call service, your call centre is that you might have. So for instance, not a health service, but just as an example, the Milne Day province has a disaster call centre where people can phone if their boat's been uh, washed offshore or they've run out of petrol or something, uh, they can phone and ask for assistance from the Milne Day province disaster centre. And I understand that's based at Digicel, as are a number of other call centres uh, at Digicel here in Gordons in Moresby. So this uh, issue about sustainability is about funding and also promotion. So what did our interviewees say about this? Well, first of all, regarding the high cost 
of call centres and the need for long-term investment, one interviewee said to us, there has to be consistent flow of funding, especially for this, this program, that, that there has to be a continuation of the service. If programs like a call centre has to come in, there has to be sufficient budget for it to, you know, maintain, its, maintain the services, and that's vital. So this issue of funding is a significant issue for a call centre. Uh, just to explain the reason why I'm emphasising the funding point is because it's quite expensive to run a call centre because staff members need to be in the call centre there being paid, of course, and ready to answer calls when they come in. So if your call centre is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, then you need to have enough staff to work in shifts around the clock to be able to be there in case phone calls come in, such as the Milne Day Disaster Call Centre as an example. For a public service, that's a phone service that's open to members of the public to be able to ring, it's important to promote it so that people know about it. They don't need to just know the phone number, they need to know the phone number when they want it and they need to know when to ring and why to ring and they need to feel available and you know that they are able to ring. So as this interviewee said, all the rural villagers, they must understand why the call centre exists. If they know the reason for it, I think they will, you know, ring. So we have to have our, people are, there has to be a lot of awareness in the villages about why the call centre is existing and the functions of the call centre so that they can understand this. So promotion, not just to people in urban centres, but if you want people in rural areas to use a call centre, then of course they need to know about it so they can use it. Another key lesson is that phone services which are accessible only to health workers are less costly and can be beneficial in terms of improving health system efficacy and efficiency. So this is the kind of phone service where maybe a health worker can phone another health worker or a health worker can phone maybe a different section of the health system, maybe free of charge or at a reduced cost or something like that, uh, which is obviously less costly than paying people to be in a call centre. Uh, and just a range of photos there for your entertainment uh, of the health sector, which you know well. So regarding this health worker to health worker communication, for example, telehealth can support rural health workers when patients are in childbirth. As this interviewee said to us, for the health workers, they get plenty of help through this. Like some, they didn't know how to deliver the baby, but mostly it was like maternal, child, uh, childbirth, and they need help and they ring. We ring ONG doctors, and that's obstetricians and gynaecologists, if you didn't know that, the people who are experts regarding childbirth. Uh, same hour, same time, they give advice, so then we ring go back. That's the help they get straight away, so it's just like we're talking face to face. So you can see the benefit of health workers being able to talk in real time on the phone. A health manager said phones are also useful regarding health worker security. There are some instances where our staff lives were under threat and just a phone call and we saved them from the threat. So obviously there's a great benefit uh, potentially for health worker safety and security as well. Regarding efficiency, especially medical referrals, that's where a patient might need to go to a different facility or see a different kind of specialist. This interviewee said it's a very effective way of referring patients and talking with and readying the health workers. We have phone numbers for all the health centres so we can ring and they can be ready. 
because we were given all the numbers for ringing them, so we can say, ring and say, oh, a patient is coming, you wait for them, so it's effective assistance. The person said in the interview, you wait for them, but I understand from these interviews that it's also about the other health worker being able to get ready, and that might involve uh, preparing an operating theatre or whatever, so there's a lot of benefit in knowing in advance that a particular kind of patient might be coming. In short, strategic use of phones between health workers has benefits, and from our research we found that it does have significant benefits. Uh, for example, maternal health hotlines or closed user groups which allow health workers to be able to speak to one another free of charge. But given limited funding, we think that this, should, this is what should be focused on. So the health worker to health worker communication seems to be like a, a more cost effective and uh, sustainable option in the Papua New Guinea context at this time. So thank you very much for listening to this brief presentation. Thank you very much, Amanda, both for that um, you know, very practical sort of research and the very um, applied conclusion that um, policymakers can take away that they should really focus on the on health worker uh, or maybe more generally service delivery worker uh, communication rather than communication hotlines for the public. So that's something I think people want to discuss uh, at the end. All right, let's go on to our second, and also thank you for keeping, thank you for setting a good example and uh, keeping well within time. Um, our second uh, paper is on decentralization, and this is research done by Lawrence Sauce, Lawang Ugyo, and Emmanuel Goria. Dr. Sauce is the Deputy Dean of uh, the School of Business and Public Policy. Uh, Dr. Ugyo is the, uh, one of our visiting lecturers from uh, Deaf Policy, based here at UPNG, and Emmanuel Goria is also in the Division of Public Policy. And uh, Lawrence and Luang are going to share the presentation. So please welcome them both. Good morning, everyone. I have only six minutes. I don't know whether I can make it within six minutes. And the bar has been set by Amanda. Well within time, so I'm a very talkative person. I talk a lot, so I'm trying to figure out how I can manage within the, the time given. Anyway, as introduced, my name is uh, Lauren Sosa and I'm from the, the business school. Uh, our ongoing research uh, focuses on decentralization in, in BNG, more specifically in district development uh, authorities. Let me give you a bit, bit of background in terms of uh, decentralization and our concerns about decentralization in, uh, in, uh, in BNG. I think over the years since 1977, when the first open law came into being, the uh, PNG government has been, if you like, uh, uh, making uh, changes and arrangements in the sub-national units of government in our decentralized system. Uh, one of the things that, we do, when we talk about decentralization in PNG, is that decentralization is really set within a unitary context as opposed to a federal context. And so, uh, uh, while the attempt has been uh, made by successive governments to uh, uh, decentralize uh, powers, functions, and authority to subnational units of government, uh, you tend to find that uh, it's not as easy as it seems when people frame the uh, decentralized arrangements. Uh, I think, uh, as speaking as a Papua New Guinean, the tendency is to uh, say, well, let's create another. A governance arrangement to decentralization, 
and uh, let's create another agency or, or set up. Uh, let it self-regulate itself and run as an autonomous institution and we expect that it will function effectively as it is. And so in 1977 when the uh, provincial governments and local governments uh, were done uh, through the organic law, that was the assumption. And then we find it again in 1995. In 2014 when the District Development Authorities uh, uh, Act came into being and we created the District Development Authorities, I think unlike the premises that let's create a self-governing corporate entity that has its own board, governed by law, that can sue, be sued, uh, have a direct control over its operations, let's leave it as that and, uh, and uh, expect that it will work. Uh, and sometimes when we uh, do things like that, I think there is an intended consequence for us to achieve, but again, uh, most of these things, they are unintended consequences and they are ongoing lingering issues. So, our presentation today would be looking at district development authorities uh, um, and the decentralized process that has happened within uh, district development authorities. Uh, our research go back in, in 2017, we went to uh, East New Britain and we undertook uh, research by looking at uh, two district development authorities, how they set up in Rubal and Kokopo. Uh, and we had uh, a focused discussion and interviews with uh, uh, the CEOs and, and the staff of the district development authorities. Uh, from those various uh, uh, district development authorities too. And uh, following on from that, we've, uh, I've had a successive focused discussion with uh, members of uh, uh, districts, public service from districts, and people who've come in from to the precinct program that we run in IPA to discuss further the concept of the district development authorities. So, <clears throat> one of the things that became important to us when we begin to look at the work of the district development authorities is that there are issues surrounding the relationships and interactions and participations of different actors within the decentralized system of government and the classic cases within develop district development authorities. Uh, while on a formal level we expect them to run smoothly, uh, those participation and interaction among different actors within a universal system of is not often taken into account. And uh, I've uh, spoken with people in, who are working with district authorities, development authorities, they're telling me, uh, Doctor, we're still confused. We just don't know how we will relate to uh, people in the, the provincial government. Uh, we are reporting to a board and a CEO, but we are essentially public servants and we're governed by the Public Service Management Act. Again, displaying the unitary aspect of, of of decentralization. And uh, our terms and conditions are determined by uh, our central agency through the Public Service Management Act and General Orders. And uh, we're supposed to be reporting to the provincial administrator as public service in the district. But now we have a CEO and a board. And we have a chairman of the board. So we're reporting to the chairman of the board. And so we have all those kinds of issues that still exist. So our presentation today is really to look at <coughs> some of the issues bordering on the administration and the operation of DDAs. But we want to look at it in the context of a meta-governance perspective. All right? Now, when I say meta-governance, it's a mouthful, and people who are not like me will not understand what meta-governance is. I mean, what is the guy talking about? And so I think in presentations like this, it's always good to try and be clear in, in, in what you mean. Um, and so, 
three of us were looking at the issues surrounding the district development authorities. What became clear to us is that there's a whole range of meta-governance issues surrounding the operations of the DDA. They have not been carefully sussed out and thought about in the initial creation of the district development authorities. Uh, our position is that district development authorities, of course, are here to stay because they are created by law, but I think there's still a lot of work for us to do in so far as making district development authorities work. All right? And so, um, as you can see on the board, when we talk about meta-governance, all right, <clears throat> the concept of meta-governance and the issues surrounding it, I think, arise from our understanding of governance. And I understand that uh, many of us have come across the word governance, and governance is used in a variety of fashion. And so uh, we are very careful in, in expressing that concept and using that concept. I think the two most common way of uh, looking at governance and all of us perhaps in this room uh, may have come across is uh, the issue of uh, good governance. All right, in the corporate world, uh, we speak a lot about corporate governance, all right? Uh, our perception and vision in so far as governance is concerned slightly differs from, you know, the traditional definitions that we find in good governance and corporate governance. I think in my search in the last literature, there were six different ways of defining and interpreting the concept of governance. But in our case, uh, uh, we see governance to mean uh, a socio-semantic uh, system. It's a system of independence, the independence of socio-political and administrative actors working together. So it's a system where you have uh, cooperation, interaction, and participation of a different number of players coming together. And so in the context of decentralizing PNZ, although the most common perception is that we create subnational units of government, empower them, allow them to be self-regulated, give them the resources and they will work. I think the story about subnational governance in PNZ is quite complex and it's far different from the common perception. That at the back of that, there is an interplay of a number of actors weaving together, participating and cooperating together. And I've given a classic example. If you look at the staff of District uh, Development Administration, you think that they are staff of District Development Administration, but essentially these are national public servants. And the regulation that regulate them is not drawn from the District Development Authority, but the Public Service Management Act, and there is a different agency altogether that administers and regulates that act, which is the Department of Personal Management. Although formally they report to the provincial administrator, we know also that from day to day they will also be reporting to the CEO and the board of the district development authorities. So there is a complex set of relationships that exist uh, if you look at it in the, in the personal level. So we look at governance as, as a totality of interaction, some uh, participation by different actors. In this case, different actors in decentralization to make decentralization work in PNG. And our, our thesis and our proposition is that that interaction, when we develop new layers of governance arrangement, especially at the subnational level, often is not given a serious look. All right, and because of that, there are gaps in the management and administration of the subnational units of government, be it political, administrative, or economic. A little bit about meta governance, since this paper will be about 
the meta-governance issues surrounding the district development authorities, the case of East New Britain, and having a broad implication on decentralization of, 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 of government in PNG. So what is meta-governance? Some people say meta-governance is the government of governance. It's a little bit of a mouthful. Meta-governance comes about because there is a need to govern governance. That is to say, in the thing called decentralization PNG, where you have central government and sub and like this, six minutes up, there is an interaction or interplay between different actors. Now that interaction, participation and interplay between different actors, some of them would have their own rules, administrative setup, staffing, resource requirement. That system itself needs to be governed, hence meta-governance. And so we have issues of meta-governance, issues of strategic direction and oversight, leadership, steering, unity and cohesion, coordination, resource sharing, empowering and of course conflict resolution among the different actors. All right. And so some of these issues are beginning to sort of come up as a result of us looking at DDAs and all that. Who really steers staff in the District Development Authority? Is it the CEO? Provincial Administrator. Is it the Board? Provincial Government. How are resources shared between the participation and interplay of different actors? Or do we just rely on DSIP? So some of these issues we'll be talking about and perhaps we'll have time to sort of discuss in the open discussion. My time is up. I'll ask my colleague to come and speak a little bit more on better governance and the issues arising from that. Thank you. So what I'll do is I'll quickly run through my slides uh, and I'll, I'll skip some slides and I'll leave them for discussion. So if you have any questions, you can ask them. So I'll go through some of the main slides very quickly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this one I think was covered last year, so why the DDA is introduced. I think Dr. Salsa has already covered some of it, so I'll skip through this. But just, I've, I've got a couple of illustrations up on the screen. And these are really simplistic, uh, but I think it's uh, useful just to give you a perspective of how it's changed over the years. So if you're looking at the system of governance prior to 1995, heavily centralized, um, and as you can see, like, the uh, lower levels of government are subsumed under the national, national government. How it's changed over the years, especially in uh, the last couple of years since the DDAs have come in, is that you actually see a, a full separation. I've been actually quite generous and showing you some overlaps, and these overlaps are mainly because of the DSIP and the PSIPs that are allocated by the national government. But in actuality, they are actually quite separate. The law, the Act states that the DDA should be separate. They're statutory uh, agencies, uh, then they can function separately, irrespective of function. And that's, that's fine because that's the, that's the point of decentralization. You want to give more authority to the local level government so that they can make decisions that affect the people there. Right. So that's that's the intention. But um, the small level of interaction, so this is what meta-governance comes in because these three key systems of governance, national government, 
provincial governments and the district level, or local level governments operating independently of each other. Uh, the uh, Solan diagrams, the circles are not as, not as per scale of the work done, but the, the overlap I've tried to show you some level of, uh, of the scope of the interaction. So what's happened is, uh, so this is what's happened, they're kind of separate. And this is why uh, we chose East New Britain. And we chose East New Britain not just because of East New Britain itself, not because of the place itself, but because of the work that um, a lot of work has been done on East New Britain by, uh, especially, uh, this is, I think Stephen and team did some work on the surgical reforms. Uh, Grant Walton done a lot of work on uh, East New Britain, looking at political, uh, the, the relationships within these uh, district administration. So East New Britain presented itself as a case of a fairly good uh, provincial or district um, level of governance. So that's why we chose Eastern Britain and we picked up on the research and we went to explore why, what was, what was right about Eastern Britain. And what was right is this, within a sort of a fragmented system, within a sort of a fragmented separate system, there were a lot of overlaps taking place. I've just put an, I've just put a, an interview from the CEO of the bomb, uh, CEO of Kokopo, but this was, uh, the view was reiterated by all the other stuff. Basically what was happening was the overlaps were taking place because of the people there. So they were willing to work together. So, and maybe that's what uh, was different about East New Britain, is the fact that people were willing to work together. So they were willing to work together at two different levels, one within the district level and the provincial level, so where people had, they were willing to put aside their differences and work together. Uh, people belong to different parties, work, working together. And at the provincial, at the national level, people were again, they, irrespective of the political system, they were working together. But what was, again, a little different about East New Britain was that the DDA, so like Dr. Charles said, the purpose was uh, to create the DDAs as a statutory agency. That also gives them the right to raise their own funds. So. Uh, Eastern Britain, some of the DDAs in Eastern Britain were doing well well then. They were able to raise funds. Uh, for instance, they, some of them were investing in property in Port Mosby. Uh, they, were, they set up a holdings company. So that, those are some of the ways that they were able to raise funds. And there were a couple of good examples. Uh, and in our paper, we'll talk to a lot of it, like especially around issues, even around personal management. There were a lot of issues around that. But I think what I want to just emphasize with this slide is that there is this space for people to work together. And the whole point about matter governance is within a whole decentralized, decentralized fragmented system, there is this space where you can actually work together. So I think this is the point I'm trying to make with this uh, slide. And uh, I think this is the learning, this is the experience that we gained from Eastern Britain, is that the fact that there is the space. So uh, I think what, and the space is important because uh, what happens is this, you have increasingly, I think PNG is getting more decentralized. I think the Prime Minister in the last few days just announced that there's going to be further decentralization, there's going to be further funds going to push down to the local level governments. And that's fine because you have to give the people the resources and local level governments are the closest to the people, so the resources are going there. But within this whole decentralized uh, sort of a fragmented system, you need that. So, uh, so you need someone to collaborate and coordinate all of that. There are also issues that arise just by the nature of the creation of the DDAs. For instance, uh, DDAs, the boards, the chairman, uh, 
members of parliament, so technically they're politicians, they will sit in, in the legislature, right? And as per separation of power, you wouldn't want a legislator who makes the laws also implementing the laws. So that's basic separation of powers. Uh, well, what's, so it's, it's good in a way that it's a responsive system, but it's also, it leads to an issue of accountability. I assume that there was a lot of wisdom and there was a lot of deliberation went in when the DDs were set up, but nevertheless that's a decision that's taken. But there are inherent issues that come up with these uh, creation of agencies. So, and then you, on the other hand, you're just looking at the three national players, but you also have a wider group of actors playing, especially in PNG, you have the donors, you have the communities, especially the church groups, playing a lot of role in education and health. You have the private sector, and the uh, DDAs have been given a lot of responsibility, they're given the authority to tender out work, so the private sector is coming along. So there is this multiple uh, actors within, you're not just looking at three, but you're looking at whole wider group of networks. So there is this big space for coordination and there is a lack of coordination right now because there is this issue of who's going to coordinate all of this. So I know we've got to run out of time. There are a couple of tools available to, uh, for meta-governance. So basically you have uh, the, the one we chose this portal, but there are lots. But basically you have a choice between uh, a more sort of a policy framework, legislative like a guidelines, uh, sort of policy kind of tools, and then you have more hands-on sort of tools. Right? So uh, I'll talk a bit about this if you have any questions about it, but basically what happens is you need combinations for a case like PNG, you will need combinations of both tools. So you need a bit of a hands-off tool and a hands-on tool. And what that does is, you, and for different sorts of functions, you need different sorts of tools. Right? Now you can't go back and re-centralize everything. That defeats the whole purpose of providing services. So you can't re-centralize, but what you can do is you need, there is this need for meta-governance, like Dr. Salsa says, and how you create the meta-governance system is important because you can't just create another system. It has to be a combination of rules, regulations, frameworks that allow you to do, allows these three players to work together, and uh, allow the three key players to work, but also you need someone who can actually coordinate that. But who you coordinate, that's really important. Uh, so, I'll just move on to uh, the last point. So, just the, some of the key points about matter governance is that you don't want uh, excessive or insufficient matter governance. You don't want to create another agency over another agency just to do that. And you don't need that, right? Because, and this is why the history building case is important, is that if there is that space for that collaboration to take place, for instance, how the uh, CEO of the DDA works with the provincial administrator. It's only the personnel that's kind of work helps, but if there is that, uh, if there is the collaboration that takes place, so for instance, the CEO reports, so CEO reports to the provincial administrator and it's based on that matter of trust. So there is that space. So I'll, uh, I'll run through my slides very quickly, but I'm happy to take questions, speaking to the slides a little later. Thank you, gentlemen. Sorry to rush you at the end. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting and promising work, and uh, certainly I wasn't familiar with the term meta-governance, so how that applies in PNG seems very important. Uh, we're going to move straight on uh, to our next presentation, which is on family and sexual violence impacts on education 
And this research is being undertaken by Dora Kua Ayus and Michelle Rooney, uh, as well as um, actually Mary Aitzi from Unitech. Uh, but Dora Kua Ayus is a lecturer, Dr. Kua Ayus is a lecturer in the social work uh, division or department in the School of Humanities, so it's great to have them involved in our research. Michelle uh, is one of our uh, research fellows uh, at the Development Policy Centre in Canberra, and they've been working together on this topic. So please welcome Dr. Kua Ayus. Thank you, Professor Krauss, um, and thank you all for coming. Let me find my presentation. Okay, um, that's the title of our pre uh, research up there. Family strategies for addressing family and sexual violence while ensuring their children's uh, school attendance. This is a collaborative research uh, by members from UP me representing UPNG for ANU, we have Miranda Forsyth and Michelle, and UNITECH, Mary Eisen, funding from Australian government, and we got support from agencies in, in LAY, agencies like Family PNG, Catholic Church, SDA, and uh, not Lutheran, only those two churches. So, let's move on. This will be the outline of our presentation. Uh, Michelle did our other presentation yesterday, so we decided I'll do this one. Our outline up there, we have background to this research and the questions, ethics and field work, and we will, I will also talk about emerging issues. Okay, to the background, we know that in PNG, we have a lot of issues surrounding family and sexual violence. So in every family, we all encounter, at least within a month, you have several cases of family and sexual violence. There are so many of these cases. So the idea is to try and find out why we have so many of these cases and how do parents or those who are involved in family and sexual violence uh, assist their children when they attend school. So this research is focused on the perspective of members of the community in lay with a view to informing the policy, legal and service provision terrain. This research is policy oriented and aimed to provide uh, the evidence base for policymakers in these spaces. We had a research question because we thought if we just go out, we might ask all sorts of questions. So we had a research question. And that is the research question. What strategies do families use to address family and sexual violence so that they can maintain their children's school attendance during periods of FSV in urban PNG? So we didn't go out to the rural areas. Our focus was in, um, within Lane. Lay City. So we sent out invitation to different business houses, uh, government departments. Uh, unfortunately, only those from the churches um, came up to help us. And through that, we went into the different communities in Lay. Okay, the field work, we had group meetings 
met with about 800 different women in Lay. We spent three weeks, and most of those groups were organized through the church connections. We also used our family networks, friends, to try and see if we can get through those um, families who are experiencing family violence. So we had at least two um, focus group discussions at Holy Spirit Parish in, in Lay. Through the focus group discussions, we put out an open invitation for women. Um, in this instance, we didn't invite men. The research is focused around women, mothers who are experiencing this. So our results will be talking about women. Yeah, and through those interviews, we, well, focus groups, we identified women and they came. So many of them came and um, we managed to interview only 17. And the interest that people, the women especially, have is just so great. In one uh, gathering, we thought we were going to have about 10 or 20. We sent in an invitation and this was uh, the Tokpisin service group for SDA Church. We went and about 600 women turned up. So we had to find a way not to turn them away, try to have a sort of a workshop time so we could have all the women contribute to, I mean, towards what we were asking them to. All right, moving on. Now the interviews. Interviewees, many women responded. Like I said before, only 70 were interviewed. And we had about four focus group meetings with schools. Not only women, we went also to the schools, to the police, uh, to the courthouse, to the hospital, and to family PNG in Lay. Um, those people were met separately, they were stakeholders, so we met with them separately and asked them questions with the stakeholders like the police and the court, we asked them questions on how they would assist um, families who, had, who were experiencing uh, violence. And the police, they, them too, we asked them a lot of questions and they gave different answers. Family PNG, we also, they deal with a lot of um, violence cases that come in with those who are severely bashed or those who are uh, at risk coming and the caseworkers deal with them. Okay, now to imaging findings. We have come up with um, some findings. These ones are just many of those ones that were put together. We have common issues on family violence, you can see multiple forms of violence, and some of these ones are chronic. They go on for over five years, some even over 20 years. So many of these uh, cases were like that. And marital intimate partner violence, that is the main form of violence, and um, that's within marriages or partners, and also between um, sons and mothers. There is another emerging finding that is uh, many sons, when they come home from drinking or taking drugs, and when they find that there's no food or money, 
they attack, they abuse their mothers. So the mothers have to deal with a lot of these ones. Okay, moving on. All right, I've put them, at least try to summarize and give you a clear picture of some of the main findings. We find, we, um, in these findings, we have some institutions that provide support for these um, women and children. Like I, I mentioned earlier on, police, police uh, have a dead job in Lagos uh, improved a lot in the last, last year or so, when Wagambi became the boss. So many of these people told us that the response from the police has increased, I mean, has become a bit better than before. And there is a toll-free number, and uh, many people call that number to get help. Okay, the, we're still on emerging results. Chronic marital intimate partner uh, violence, that one I've said it before. And the other issue that's coming up is um, financial constraints. Financial constraints is a very big issue. Almost all of the women that we talked to or the focus group discussions we have talked about financial constraints. And uh, from the mothers, financial constraint was experienced due to neglect, especially by fathers, uh, when they have an affair or take on a new partner. So when that happens, the wife and the kids are neglected. Nothing much is done, so. And so the family and uh, the victims of FSV depend on friends and relatives. They have to turn to friends for help. If those who are close by try to uh, help them with the situation they are in. And sometimes when they are fights, Neighbors don't want to help. They think I'm something normal. You know, heavy blowing. Why should I help? It's their problem. And so, the people who are experiencing this um, don't have a lot of choices. With friends, some good friends help. When the children are in, in this kind of situation, some friends come and take them away, let them stay there, and then when the situation cools off, they bring them back. Okay, now to the impact of economic constraints on mothers and children. We were talking about um, school attendance. The results show that non-payment of school fees, see most children out back on the streets, or they come back home, and they don't have bus fare to pay and go to school. Sometimes little or no food. So children are hungry, they have no bus fare, and we were talking to one principal, secondary school principal, and he was telling us about a boy who was staying up at the Nazap area, and he has to walk all the way down to Lake City for his education. And on that particular day, they were having an exam, and this boy woke up, I don't know what time he woke up, very early. He walked and walked, and by the time he reached the school, the exam just finished. So the principal had to 
fill in some forms and make sure that he didn't miss out completely. At least he'll be assessed in a different way. Uh, apart from that, low education levels. To the women who responded to us, many of them have very low uh, levels of education or almost illiterate. So what can you do if you're illiterate, can't read? And the last one we have there is major constraint of women's ability to seek support for services, for FSV. Women have extreme, they encounter extreme difficulties in accessing those services, partly because of the financial constraints. Okay, now I have two stories for you. I've decided to just, there are two stories, and in those stories, I don't know how much time I have left. Uh, there are two stories. The first one, in 2011, my husband left me and our two children because I took him to the police for breaking my hand twice. He returned to our village and married another woman. Sometimes we go without food. My, food. my older child never went to school when he was younger. He is now 17 and still in primary school. He was in grade two. I struggle to sell things in the market to support, my, support me and my children. The other story there, when my husband is drunk, he gets angry and abuses me and my children. He wakes um, children from their sleep and swears at all of us. The type of words he uses to swear are not supposed to come from a father to his children. He has had multiple affairs and doesn't support me and the children. I sell things in the market to generate income to buy lunch, food for my children, and pay for bills. My older son resorted to alcohol and drugs and tell his father, why should we listen to you? Okay, these are two stories and um, these are their own words. And um, they talk about the struggles they go through. And in there, women are resilient. And they work very hard to support their children and how they will make sure their children go to school. Okay, imagine issues from, and lessons from mothers' voices. Chronic violence or neglect of mothers and children by husbands and fathers. Resilience of mothers, very, very strong. Women can, um, they do things on their own without, or less, less lack of support from their happiness. And many of them resort to prayer. They see spirituality and prayer as a source of strength and hope. Um, the other is church is a place of social safety, networks and encouragement. They find encouragement when they are involved in church activities. Okay, how do, how do schools know if a child is coming from a home experiencing FSV? We spoke to teachers from different schools and some counselors as well. They are not trained to be counselors, but they have crash courses, short courses that the education department organizes for them to go through before they go into counseling. So the teachers um, look at the attendance 
If they see inconsistent school attendance or long absences from school, they know uh, these are children who may be having problems, so they try to talk to them. Or those who come late, and some who perform at a higher level previously, and when their marks drop, the teachers uh, talk to them and find out more. And the other one is uh, teacher, uh, observation on children, um, children's behavior patterns. Some, they are very good, and then all of a sudden, they don't hand in assignments, or they are fighting other students in the school. And the students confide in the teachers, sometimes in their friends, or the parents inform them. Okay, how do schools respond when students experiencing um, violence at home? Counseling. And um, they talk to them. One or two teachers look after the counseling, but they share. And um, the principals, some, one particular one that we talked to, we tried to provide accommodation for, for students who are very, very in, coming from these kind of homes. And they also try to be fair. To, to the to family PMG or to police, depending on the kind of situation that the child is in. And schools also support uh, students who are in year 8, 10, and 12, those who are sitting for exams. Okay, we have further questions. Do teachers, um, does teacher training include counseling for teachers? We, we are thinking that we should raise these questions and we can think about further research to try and build more uh, information on this topic. And how can, number two, referral process, trying to see how we can uh, come up, help in researching to come up with referral uh, pathways. And assisting disadvantaged children. And the other one is, can counseling be confused with discipline or vice versa? Uh, because, these uh, teachers who are counseling are not um, trained counselors. Okay, my time is up. We have only two recommendations. Establish an avenue where all relevant stakeholders are accommodated for victims of FSV to easily access. At the moment, the, we have services, but they're scattered. And victims find it hard. They go to the police, they have to pay extra money, and they don't really get the help they want and try to see if we can find a way to provide assistance to ease financial cost of seeking support. Because um, many of these women don't seek help because of financial issues, or they are scared. If they take the perpetrator to court or to the police, he might go away and their source of income will be cut off. They won't have any support. So with that, thank you, Drulahari. Thank you, Dora. That was a very rich set of findings. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions uh, about that research. Uh, we're going to move straight on to our... We've got two more to go. Uh, the, our fourth presentation, the topic is... So we're now changing tack towards the economic side of things. Infant industry protection in PNG case studies. And this is work done by Maho Lave and Rowan Fox. So Rowan, you know, yesterday is one of our uh, researchers at um, ANU. Uh, Maho Lave was a tutor, student, then a tutor here. He's now currently doing his studies 
uh, his master's in economics at the ANU, and he's going to come back here and be a lecturer. So it's great to have someone, one of the, the new emerging researchers, uh, present. And among his, his studies, Maho's found, found the time to work with Rowan on this important topic of uh, infant industry protection. So please welcome Maho. I won't have a PowerPoint, so just please bear with me. Thank you. In this presentation, I will be speaking on the impact that the 2018 tariffs levied on various goods will have on the PNG economy. Drawing from the experiences of the company's PNG Holland Limited of the 1980s and Rum Sugar Limited of the 1980s to the 2000s. 2018 marks the last stage of the tariff reduction program, a program that began in 1999, aimed at reducing maximum bound tariff rates to a uniform rate of 10%, from rates as high as 125%, and this was in the 1980s and the 1990s. These reductions were conducted in incremental 5% reductions over, over three-year intervals. Alluding to what was mentioned yesterday, concerning this year's tariffs by Mr. Links Taki and Professor House, there have been 250 tariff increase tariff line increases this year, apart from the other 600 that were reduced this year. The tariff rates this year indicate that the PNG government has deviated from the legislative tariff reductions program, levying tariff rates some as high as 30% on various goods including food and beverages, clothing and accessories. The reasons for these tariffs seem to be, firstly, a protectionist measure on infant industry imports substituting um, domestic industries, Second, a response to what the government deems trade discrimination by major trading partners against PNG's trade potential. Other reasons are that um, the government wanted to provide employment and also to raise revenue. Standard trade theory states that the consumers will lose out because of high prices and a reduced supply. In 2003, the tariff reduction program was stalled because of a application for suspension by the Manufacturing Council. As a result, the government established a tariff review task force to review the progress of the tariff reduction program. Comparative, the report found that the levying of high tariffs resulted in inefficient allocation of, in an inefficient allocation of resources among industries that possess comparative advantage. Thus, costs to labor and physical capital increased as a result, penalizing other industries. Another key finding from the report, in support of the tariff reduction program was tariff rates had a negative effect on export industries that did not have import substitutes due to tariff on imports, inputs and raw materials used in production. This resulted in, for example, a zero rating imported on imported beans used in canned baked bean production. Furthermore, a significant impact of high tariffs is that labor-intensive, small-scale agricultural producers were not affected as adversely compared to large producers in terms of input costs. For the manufacturing sector, the industries that expanded the slowest were those that were subjected to the highest tariffs, like the tuna and mackerel canneries. Now I'll go through the case studies, P&G Hala Cement Limited. The company P&G Hala was a 50% joint venture between the government and Korean company Hala, providing cement for domestic consumption. 
It began operating in 1993 and over the course of seven years enjoyed a range of trade protection measures, including an import ban on cement, tariff protection, pioneer industry status, and a duty-free importation of factory plant and machinery, spare parts and raw materials. The PNG government additionally provided an upfront capital investment worth US $4 million and a, alongside a $31 million US dollar loan from the Import-Export Bank of Korea. Initially, PNG Hala Cement was projected to produce an annual output of 200,000 tons of cement. However, the company suffered in the first few years of production due, due to a downturn in the economy and a keener devaluation in the 1990s. Following the import ban in 1993, tariff rates were held at 40%. High tariff rates were not only used to protect the infant industry, but also used as an anti-dumping measure. As it was claimed, the PNG economy was subject to the influx of cheap cement. A brief study analyzing the cement industry claims that PNG does not possess a comparative advantage in the production of cement. The protection of cement was justified by the PNG government on the basis that it would contribute to the adverse balance of payments, stimulate employment, provide training to develop a more skilled workforce, and protect infant industry. <coughs> tariff, protection, tariff protection of PNG Hala had mixed effects. A small positive impact was that the company employed 30 people. However, the adverse impacts included input price, prices rose as mobile resources moved from other efficient industries, for example, coffee, cocoa, palm oil, and others, and into the relatively profitable cement industry. Second, the general cost structure rose because of the increased demand for labor and physical capital. These effects implied that the protection measure possessed an inherent anti-export bias against PNG's traditional cash crops. In addition to the structure, in addition, the structure of PNG Hollow was subdivided into different parts of production and were located in different parts of the country. Due to high transport costs, this study also found that it was cheaper to import cement clinker, which is the limestone gravel used to produce cement. It was also cheaper to source labor from Australia and New Zealand. In 2000, the PNG government sold its stake to the Japanese cement company PNG Taiheo Cement for 8.5 million US dollars. As total capital investment initially was 35 million US dollars, uh, the shareholders of the company suffered a loss of 26.5 million US dollars. PNG Taiheo seems to have done well following the sale. Um, they now export to the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, and Micronesia. Now, the second case study is on Ramu Sugar. Ramo Sugar Limited, now Ramo Agri Industries, began in 1982 as a capital-intensive industry. Ramo Sugar has enjoyed an import ban in the mid-1980s, high tariffs in the 2000s, and now has a tariff rate of 30% this year. The PNG government had a 48.9% equity share in the Ramo Sugar enterprise, which it then sold to New Britain Palmoil Limited in 2004, who changed the name to Ramo Agri Industries. 2,500 hectares of sugarcane fields have now been converted to palm oil fields. The operations of Ramu Sugar faced several unforeseen problems that affected production. For example, the sugar stunt disease in 1982, the drought in 1993, the sesame bore beetle in 1996, and also low world sugar prices in the same period, all of which reduced targeted output. As an investment venture for government, Ramu Sugar performed well, they earned three years of revenue in the first 10 years of production and paid out no dividends in the same period. The basis for high tariffs were to protect the Rama Sugar from cheaper US and European Union sugar imports. Rama Sugar in 2007 had 
2,000 workers employed. However, PNG does not possess comparative advantage in the sugar production as estimated in several studies. One such study, by, one such study pointed out that sugar production located in Medang province is weakly competitive due to unsuitable weather conditions and the difficulty of achieving economies of scale with lower than projected output. Economies of scale is the ability to produce at lower average cost. Ramo industry has expressed fears that at 40% tariff rate, sugar production will no longer be commercially viable. At present, Ramo industry sells sugar products to end consumers and to larger customers, for example, Coca-Cola Amazon. A review of the sugar industry by the IEEE in 2013 found that a 35% tariff remained a significant barrier for other competitors to enter the industry, where Ramo sugar industry constitutes three quarters of the market. Tariff reductions over the years have allowed large customers like Coca-Cola Amatil to move to cheaper sugar imports with complaints that Ramo industry does not consistently supply quality sugar products. The sugar tariffs have had a regressive effect on custom consumers, with one study that found that the poorest one-tenth of households paid an equivalent 3.2% tax in sugar consumption, compared to the richest one-tenth of households who paid a 0.6% tax in price increase. It also has seen that large customers who use sugar as an input also enjoy tariff protection, hence a further tariff reduction would allow resources to be more efficiently allocated to these different industries. In conclusion, it appears that the government appears to find it difficult to judge infant industries on the basis of long-term commercial vi viability and does not account for natural comparative advantage and it does not take into account the wide economic impacts of other industries. Thank you. Thank you, Maho. It's very important we learn from history, including economic history. Uh, so our final speaker is Colin Wiltshire. Colin's going to talk on health expenditure performance in PNG. And Colin's a researcher from the ANU, from the Department of Pacific Affairs. So it's really good to have someone uh, from another part of ANU. And he's been doing this research with Amanda, whom you heard from earlier, and also Denise Lockinup, uh, who is in the School of Business Public Policy, and our former colleague, Tasha Curry. This is, I think, is one of the um, first research projects we started on, so it'll be very interesting to hear uh, what Colin has to say. Okay, uh, thank you, Stephen, for the introduction. Yeah, so firstly, I'd like to start by acknowledging my colleagues on this research, uh, Amanda Watson, Denise Lockenup, and Tasha Curry. So on our behalf, I'm gonna present some preliminary findings from case study field work carried out at health clinics in East New Britain and Gulf Province. This research was essentially a follow-up to a much larger survey conducted by the National Research Institute and the ANU um, as part of the Promote Effective Public Expenditure Project, um, where we published the report of Lost Decade in 2014 uh, that showed that health services had declined against important indicators despite large increases in recurrent and development budgets um, over a 10-year period. These findings also revealed widespread inequalities in the delivery of health services across PNG. Now, it's particularly amongst provinces, but also um, amongst government and church-run clinics. So while East New Britain's health service may be far from perfect, its performance was much better than other provinces. And it can also be said that 
health services in Gulf province had almost grounded to a halt. So essentially went back to these provinces to find out why performance differed so significantly. And overall, the main finding from the case studies is that PNG government's major health policies continue to show little evidence of improving health services on the ground. In fact, from this small subset of health clinics revisited in East New Britain and Gulf, most indicators had either stagnated or declined when compared to the data in the lost decade report. We argue that current health policies have become increasingly politicised, which risks further fragmentation of PNG's primary healthcare system. So in terms of the structure of this presentation, I'm going to begin by showing you disparities in performance between East New Britain and Gulf, and then I'll take you through the method we've used um, in the case studies. Before providing an outline of these major health policies and our preliminary findings, firstly in relation to health clinic financing, and that's the recurrent budgets made available through the health function grants, and then development spending for health infrastructure through the District Services Improvement Program, the DSIP. After that, I'll discuss our findings as they relate to the early implementation of PNG's free primary healthcare policy. And finally, I'll look at changes in medical supply policy and compare drug availability to the clinics we revisited. So firstly, let me show you um, some indicators that demonstrates the huge uh, differences in health performance between East New Britain and Gulf compared to overall averages, which are the black line, um, based on the last decade report. So this first graph shows a percentage of health clinics with access to an ambulance, 59% in East New Britain, 3% in Gulf. Percentage of health clinics with electricity, 67 East New Britain, 15% Gulf. Clinics that prepare budgets or plans to receive funding, 85% East New Britain, 18% Gulf. And of those budgets they prepare, clinics actually receive a budget, 33% compared to 9. And clinics that charge user fees, so all clinics in East New Britain charge fees compared to about half in Gulf. And then annual average user fees raised in East New Britain is more than 12,000 kina. In Gulf, it's just over 1,000 kina. And health clinics have provided more than five outreach patrols. These are health centres. Almost half in East New Britain, 3% in Gulf. And carried out maintenance of the staff uh, rooms or health clinic, 52% compared to 26%. So... As you can understand, we wanted to find the reason for these huge discrepancies in performance. So, in terms of the method used, um, the same health survey was replicated in 2016 for comparison, as well as we conducted qualitative, semi-structured interviews and focus groups at these case study sites. In East New Britain, the research teams carried out field work in Gazelle and Pomio districts. Um, in Gulf, the teams visited Kokori and Karama. So for each of these districts, one of the best performing health, health clinics was sampled, along with one of the poorest performing health clinics, and we achieved a balance between government and church-run clinics. Now in terms of findings, I'm going to start with this health function grant, which in the mid-2000s, PNG's National Economic and Fiscal Commission successfully argued that underfunding frontline health services was a major reason for declining indicators. And this chart shows that there's been gradual but substantial increases in the function grant to provinces over the last decade. With an increase from 64 million kina in 2012 to 112 million kina in 2000, um, 2016, you might expect that health clinics should actually be receiving more. However, this is not how the function grants work um, based on the 2008 reforms to intergovernmental financing arrangements. 
So this graph shows that the health function grant for golf increased more substantially than East New Britain. But look at the gap between Sandown Province and Moravay Province that has basically received no increase in their function grant. This is because the reform system focuses on the difference between provinces existing to internal revenue and their supposed actual cost of meeting minimum health priorities. So provinces with the greatest need receive the greatest share. Still, by 2016, you would be a reasonable expectation that more clinics should be preparing budgets, right? However, from the small subsample of clinics surveyed again, our findings revealed that health clinic budgets had largely stayed the same or slightly in decline. For example, in Gulf Province, only one of the four clinics revisited prepared a budget or plan in 2016, which was one less than 2012. And for this major health centre that submitted a budget, um, the officer in charge said that cuts to national grants through the Christian Health Services had greatly reduced the uh, budgets available. For instance, this particular health centre was supposed to receive 20,000 kina a month for its operations, similar to what it received in 2012, yet it was only receiving 6,000 kina. And as a result, staff had not been paid at this health centre for the first three months of 2016. So the 2012 surveys also collected data on the extent to which DSIP was benefiting health clinics across the country. And I think this slide shows a striking comparison of what we found in East New Britain and Gulf. Now just focus on the red here because the blue is schools. And you can see that the clinics that received a DSIP project were similar in both provinces, 20 and 23%. Although in East New Britain, three quarters had finished the project in full and on time, whereas none were able to do the same in golf. Although over the electoral period 2013 to 2017, um, constituency development, development funds through the DSIP broadened and increased significantly to include governors and LLG presidents. But importantly, this graph shows that it's the open MPs that were able to receive their allocations through the DSIP, while it was the LLGSIP and the PSIP that were significantly cut. So look at the difference between 2013, where it ended up in 2017, and the gap. Overall, though, we did expect that perhaps clinics would be receiving more, and this actually did prove to be the case. In East New Britain, three of the four clinics we revisited received recent DSIP funds for infrastructure, which was an increase from only one in 2012. And a clinic in Pomio District received 25000 um, for clinic room redevelopment directly into its bank account. However, the implementation of this project was more than 18 months behind the schedule. Whereas another clinic in Kokopo received 75000 Kina, um, which was managed by, managed by the district's health office, and this project was completed in full and on time. And both of these clinics believe that DSIP was actually a fair way of allocating health resources. But in Gulf, as in 2012, none of the revisited clinics received any DSIP funds. The exception was a major health um, facility in Kokori that had been promised one million kina from the Prime Minister when he visited Kokori Station. However, this promise of infrastructure support did not come to fruition. Instead, the public promise made by the Prime Minister caused serious disharmony in Kokori. When the OIC told me that, and I'll paraphrase here, I had to go to the market on a busy day. I actually stood on a box and announced, I know you people think we've received a million kina and it has been misused, but please take it up with the treasury people. The funds have not come to us. 
Also in 2014, the PNG government rolled out its free primary health care policy, which on paper appears to be a positive endeavour. However, introducing this policy has simply meant abolishing user fees raised by clinics while attempting to supplement this revenue through predetermined subsidies. But ensuring these payments reach health workers that provide frontline health services is very difficult. <clears throat> At the time of launching, health service providers and government officials expressed deep concern about the rollout of this policy. Health managers said it could cost people their lives, calling it the politician's policy, while senior NDOA, NDOH officials said that, um, that this, this policy could collapse the system. I think you're laughing at the, uh, at the what's that? That's fine. That's fine. It is quite funny. You've got to use your heads and make sure you pay your fees. Huh? So, for these case studies, we were particularly interested in what was happening with the rollout of this free primary healthcare policy, where clinics no longer charging fees. So, the last decade report showed that over 80% of clinics charge fees, um, and they use this revenue to deliver basic services. East New Britain clinics raise much more from fees than any other province, while Gulf basically receives none. You can see on screen just those big disparities by province. But in 2016, the expectation was that no clinic should be charging fees, right? However, our findings showed that this was not the case. In East New Britain, only one of the revisited clinics um, had complied with the policy. And perhaps more surprising, that the clinics that had continued to charge fees were raising more than when the policy was introduced. For instance, two of the four clinics revisited in, in East New Britain were collecting more than twice as much from user fees in an average month compared to 2012. And as expected in Gulf Province, the introduction of this free policy didn't mean much because the province already had a free policy in place beforehand. So finally, um, I want to talk about some important changes to the procurement and delivery of medical supplies at health clinics in PNG. In 2012, our health surveys captured the beginning of this donor-led initiative um, with medical supplies kits, and it showed a fairly promising start to the reform. However, alleged political corruption in the procurement of medical supplies into the country in 2014 saw a higher cost bidder without formal accreditation win a competitive tender, as highlighted in yellow on the slide, which has effectively um, derailed uh, reform efforts into medical supplies policy. So we're especially interested in drug stocks at clinics in our case studies. So we asked revisited clinics about the availability of 16 common drugs and medical supplies, which enabled a direct comparison to be made between 2012 and 2016. Our findings show significantly fewer drugs and medical supplies available in East New Britain, down from 83% in 2012 to 59% in 2016. And the chart, on screen, the chart on screen shows that these findings for each of the four clinics um, revisited in Pomio and Kokopo, where the blue line is 2012, and the red is 2016. And there was little difference or no change um, in golf between 2012 and 2016, largely because it was starting from such a low base. Um, other aspects of the data collected revealed possible explanations for the decline in the drug availability in Eastern Britain. For instance, one clinic in Pomio said that waiting times had increased from seven days on average to 60 days on average between 2012 and 2016. In addition, all clinics revisiting East New Britain said they were not satisfied with the content of the medical supply kits, 
And in 2012, all four clinics said that they knew when these kits were actually going to come to the clinic, but in 2016, only one of the four was able to know when these um, kits were actually going to come. So overall, you can see that the PNG government's major health policies have become increasingly politicised and experiencing significant implementation challenges. I actually have to say that I think development funds for health clinic infrastructure through the DSIP is probably the most encouraging finding from this case study research. Uh, remember also that this data is by no means nationally representative, and there are major limitations to dealing with such a small sample. But it does point to a worrying trend, right? So clearly much broader and, and representative research um, is required in this space. And what I've shown you here is just a snapshot of our findings. We're currently working on the final report, which will be due soon. Thanks. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.